Hey there, everybody. Welcome to another installment of the Incredible Two-Headed Podcast. I'm your host, Aaron Lowe, and in just a moment, I'm going to introduce my host body for the week. In case this is your first time listening and you're wondering what all that meant, I'll explain. Every week, I awake to find my head has been removed from my body and placed onto the body of another friend and movie lover. Together, we're given a note with a theme, and then it is up to us to each pick a movie that fits that theme, watch, and discuss. Hence, the incredible two-headed podcast. And my guest today, I'm really excited about, is Ashley Sutherland of the Choose Film Podcast. Ashley, how is it going? Hi, I'm doing really good, Aaron. How are you? Yeah, doing doing pretty well. A little bit sleep deprived. I've been up all night here, but uh, you know, hit my second wind. I think I'm going to be good for this. <laughs> good. Thank you so much for having me on as well. Oh yeah, no, I'm I'm really excited. I I was uh, really glad I reached out to you guys, and cause, well, we had Gary on last week, who's your co-host on the Choose yeah. Film podcast, and uh, you know, one of these days, maybe get you both on the show at once if you <laughs> say considering. We'll see if you guys both yeah, like this definitely. experience, but uh, we thought it would be fun to kind of split things up a little bit. But first of all, why don't you uh, why don't you tell listeners just a little bit about what you do, maybe a little bit about the Choose Film podcast? Yeah, absolutely. So I am an actor and a life coach, and I've known Gary for oh, I think three years now. We worked together on one of his films um, and a few other things. And Gary approached me about um, starting a podcast on film. Um, So each week on Choose Film, we take a guest host who gives us a film based on our theme of the season. So just now we are on a feel-good theme. So we've had lots of feel-good films on um, and we kind of take a deep dive into each film. We do some fun facts, some quizzes, and yeah, I was just so happy that you reached out to us, Aaron, because it's amazing to just get to chat with like-minded people, other f- film lovers, and a little disclaimer that I've said on my podcast as well, there are so many films that I have not seen, and that's <laughs> one of the reasons why we started the podcast as well, because I was like, I can learn so much from all the guests and watch films that I really should have seen that I haven't seen. So yeah, that's a bit about, about what I do. Well, we, we talked a little bit about last week about how our shows kind of have a, a bit of a similar concept in that we have a yeah. guest that brings a movie every week to talk about. But you're, you're completely right. I started this because I like talking about movies. There's a lot of blind spots, but also I like to talk about what other people like as their favorite movies. And, you know, maybe it's something I haven't seen. I'm hoping to kind of like stretch my boundaries a little bit. I mean, I like everything. I watch a lot, but I really think it's strange to say but one of the best things about this lockdown for me has been Twitter. I, I talked about this a bit mm-hmm. last week is that, you know, for as much as people call that, that site a hellscape, and it certainly can be at times, <laughs> it, it's really connected me with a lot of people in my local community that I, I never met having lived here now for six years, but I'm also connecting to like kind of a larger film fan community or filmmaker community even around the world. And you guys are definitely part of that. I'm really really happy I decided to take my Twitter account, which I've had now since 2009. And I only really started tweeting this last year. Yeah, I think Twitter has been amazing for that connection. You know, obviously during lockdown and everything, we've not been able to go out and meet people in person. So we've had to turn to technology and actually it's opened up so many doors for us all. And, you know, we are on a completely different 
continent from you and it's just amazing that we were able to connect and over something that we love no completely yes i i agree a lot of this is due to my friend uh carlos he has a show and he's had me on a few times and it's really kind of his fault because <laughs> he, he he gives you like the guest five movies for each show that they have to watch five he's going through the list of the thousand and one movies you must see before you die that the book uh Steven Schneider, I can't remember the author's name. And so yeah, five that. movies a time, but it's really making me watch these classics that I just hadn't gotten around to. That was so much fun. And I got tired of just waiting for him to call me maybe once a month. <laughs> that yeah. I'm like, I'm going to do this on my own. Oh, I need to check that out and his podcast. I think podcasts became such a huge part of my life from the start of 2020. And I just couldn't do without them. And <laughs> I love, I love doing a podcast. I love listening to podcasts. Love yeah, it. I've actually had almost the opposite in that mm -hmm. the job I had before lockdown started, I, I could li like listen to podcasts all day while doing it. And so I would have my commute. I would have my eight hours at work. I would listen to music sometimes, but I was listening to podcasts all the time. And now I, I don't have that commute or I'm not at work. So I can't just start playing a podcast in the living room. That's kind of boring for other people that aren't into it. <laughs> so I really have to like, like, I'm going to go do dishes. I'm going to listen to a podcast while I do dishes or, or something like that. So my listening has gone way down, but yeah. I am getting more and more into like the world and, and other podcast creators. Love it. Yeah. I used to always listen to, listen to a podcast, sorry, when I went out on a run, because I'm a person who I don't really like running. But if I've got a podcast on, it gets me through it. So that was a big, <laughs> big help for my <laughs> fitness yeah, over lockdown. You're right. I used to, you know, I used to like to listen to music. And then when podcasts came around, there's something about that conversational aspect of it. It just really makes whatever you're doing, the time flies by. Yeah, definitely. And I think for me as well, because it was a conversation and you didn't know how long it was going to go on for or what's coming next made everything feel easier whereas if I was listening to music I was like okay I've got two more choruses then probably about three more songs <laughs> left of this run <laughs> yeah conversely to that do you ever have that experience where because it can be so conversational you're listening to it and you kind of start to get frustrated that you can't jump in and talk back <laughs> yeah I have definitely had that and sometimes I do find myself just kind of talking at it as well I will be out on a walk listening to a podcast and I'll be like, oh, I should write this down and email like a comment in about this. And then it's like an, it's an episode that's three months old and I catch myself <laughs> before I send it because I'm like, they're not going to even remember what I'm talking about at this point. Oh, no, definitely. And those times where I've been out in public listening to a podcast and just burst out laughing and then realized no one else knows what's going on in my head right now. Yeah, I, I, I don't know why. I mean people will realize you're listening to something because you have headphones in, but there's still something I find a little embarrassing about laughing a lot to something nobody else can hear. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But it's such a, it's such an escape, isn't it? Um, just getting lost in a podcast. I love it. Well, I guess maybe we should, speaking of podcast, kind of get into this one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, uh, we have our theme and our theme today is escape, simply escape. So we picked our movies. We're just going to take a quick, quick, quick break. It'll only be a couple of seconds for you listening. 
And when we get back, we're going to be talking about the first of our two movies. One evening when the sun went down and the jungle fire was burning, down the tracks came a hobo hiking. And he said, boys, I'm not turning. I'm headed for a land that's far away. <laughs> beside the I guess they still can't hear us. Do you remember how Alice wasn't always in Wonderland? She fell down, 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 deep in a hole. Right, well, I wasn't always in room. <gasps> I'm like Alice. Now we've got a chance. I'm scared. I know. <sighs> Truck. Truck. Wiggle out. Wiggle out. Jump. Jump. Run. Run. <laughs> a 2015 film starring Brie Larson as a woman raising her five-year-old son, played by Jacob Tremblay, in the tiny shack she's been confined to for seven years after being kidnapped by a man she has named Old Nick. It's no real spoiler to say that the two eventually make their way out of the titular room and have very different reactions to suddenly finding their world has become much, much larger. Now, any other details we can get into as we discuss, but uh, I know I saw this movie... Shortly after it came out, I didn't see it theatrically. I, I saw it like right away. I'd heard such good things. Once it was out streaming or on demand, I, I got it right away. And I loved it then. Thought it was very good. I had not a completely different reaction, but a much more heightened reaction watching it this second time. How about you? What's your history with this movie? Yeah, so I, I've watched it three times now. The first time I saw it, I just remember like it having such an impact on me. And I think that was about two years ago, maybe. And I just couldn't believe that I'd seen a film this good. Honestly, I was just, I, I honestly, I had no words for it, but I couldn't stop talking about it. It was that feeling. Um, and then I watched it again last week. And I feel like it did actually, similar to you, it did actually have a bigger impact on me. Not, I hadn't forgotten anything about it or anything that happens, but I still felt myself, you know, getting so connected to these characters and really shouting at the TV at some points. And yeah, it just has such a big effect on me. And then I watched it again last night with my parents who hadn't seen it before. And I was so excited for them to see it because it's on my list of films that everybody has to see. And I just loved it. I just get so drawn into it. And it's not one of those films that I kind of, I don't know, pick apart or, or you know, think, oh, that's great acting there or, oh, that cinematography is great or whatever. I'm just so drawn in. So, yeah, I feel like almost every time I watch it, I get more and more drawn into the story. You're, you're right about kind of not picking it apart because, or at least like the cinematography and the visuals, because this is a very like not necessarily a subtle film in its filmmaking, but it, it doesn't get in the way. It's not overly flashy, 
and it's not just kind of like workmanlike. It is it is gracefully done, gracefully directed, but it is in a way that doesn't call attention to itself. Like I think the biggest thing we can all point to is the moment that they actually get out of the room and you see yeah. the first like Jack's first glimpses that the world is is so much bigger and he can't even quite focus on it. And that's when we get the first like wide shot. We see what the outside of their room looks like. And we see that yard and the house. And there's all these shots in that moment that are set so high up, like yeah. looking down on the characters that it it really like it, it makes them look I saw a review that said it made it, it made him look like an astronaut on a foreign planet. Like because yeah. he's he's so tiny in the vastness of the frame after being like uh, caught so claustrophobically in the beginning. But other than that, like it, this is stuff that you, you don't, you don't even need to notice. It can be just something you pick up on subliminally almost. Yeah. It just evokes so much emotion in me. And I love that feeling. I don't know about you, but see when I come out of watching a film and I just feel kind of exhausted <laughs> exhausted for the characters and like I've been taken on such a journey that is what makes an incredible film for me and this is one of those I have a I have a thing I say sometime and it, it, that no good movie is really depressing and this is not a movie that's I mean it, it is tugging at heartstrings it's not overly sentimental it is not melodramatic but it is trying to get you emotional but the, the, this movie isn't just trying to depress you but i can see people like coming out of it going oh this movie is too depressing because it, it it can make you cry but i have that feeling where i come out of it even if i felt sad even if like my last viewing last night of this movie i was ugly sobbing <laughs> at, at a couple of points in the movie i come out at the end of the movie and i i get your feeling you kind of feel a little bit wiped out but i also feel a, like a little bit elated like I'm really happy that I found something that's affected me that much yeah that that is exactly how I feel as well and I feel like this film does have so much optimism as well it is it is really heavy and there are times where I was just absolutely heartbroken but there's so much optimism and I think especially from Jack's character you know he's so enamored by the world and he's just so inquisitive that that just brings so much hope and oh I love it yeah it, it is a hopeful movie you have to go through some some pretty rough stuff I mean it never gets like yeah it, it never drowns in being miserable but there is some heavy stuff you get through but it is all stuck on Jack's point of view which mm -hmm. in a couple of scenes I, it kind of makes it a little bit worse. Like the the scenes when old Nick would come in and you don't really see old Nick. You're just in the wardrobe with Jack and he's hearing the conversations and the sounds, which can make that like much more unsettling. But the, the entire yeah. movie is filtered through him and he is such an optimist and he's kind of not aware of some of the darker meanings of the, well, of uh, room. Room is not just the title of the movie, but it's what he calls his entire world, basically. Yeah, yeah. And I always call her Ma, but Joy is um, is so protecting of of Jack, but she makes his world like she creates his world to be to have so much freedom, and he he doesn't seem to feel 
restricted in any way because that's all that he knows and you're so right you know the parts where he's in the wardrobe and you just you hear sounds or you see little bits through the sort of slats of the wardrobe that does make it seem like well it is just an awful situation but that does really think make you think you know we're seeing this through this little boy's eyes and he's going through this and he doesn't understand that that's actually such an awful thing that's happening but this is just his world yeah and he calls it sometimes his mom uh joy has how does he call it her gone days where where she's like she's too depressed to get out of bed or do anything or respond to anything uh uh-huh. He doesn't even seem really overly concerned with that. He kind of accepts it. He takes it in stride. And I think it is because he, she has kind of protected him. She has done something which somebody calls it out later. You could say it is almost a form of, of child abuse, the way she kind of like gives him a warped view of the world. It, it isn't child abuse. It's, it's kind of the only way she could have done it in this situation where she kind of just like everything you see on TV, that's pretend everything outside is pretend. The only thing that exists is this room because he's never gone out of it. And as far as they know, he may never get out of the room. He has all these interesting ways of looking at and describing things around him. And I really like, there's moments when she starts to say, well, no, look, the stuff I told you before, it, it, it wasn't true. You were too young. You're old enough now. There are things outside. She's trying to convince him like we should get out of here. Like it, it's, it, he's throwing a tantrum like a five-year-old. He's so really believable in that, in the way he kind of can't comprehend that anything else could exist because he's never seen it. I mean, he's seen it on TV, but he doesn't, like, that's not real. Yeah, it's that she is protecting him because, you know, she knows that if he realizes that they're stuck or she was stolen by old Nick, as she says later on, that that's that's kind of alerting him to the whole trauma of the situation. And I totally understand why she has protected him in this way and created this world, you know, this is real, but that's not real. No, Mouse is, you know, Mouse is fine. And saying that, you know, she trips up on a line when she says um, there's not enough room, space, there's not enough space because room is their world. You know, room is nothing else but their world. And she's very careful with her words that she uses around him. And then you're right, when she does start to say, look, this is what's real, everything's real, those people are on TV, they're real, their actors are playing dress up. Oh no, the cartoon is just TV, teaching him all this stuff. And you just feel that sense of overwhelm that Jack gets because he's only known this room for five years. Yeah. And suddenly his world is expanding, but he's not able to reach any of the stuff that she's telling him about. And you just, you send so much confusion. And yeah, it's the first time where you think, oh, you get that sort of glimpse of he is a five-year-old little boy. He's having a tantrum and okay, now things are going to change. So part of what this movie really like it affected me this time so much more is because I I do have a four-year-old, which means that when I saw this movie, she had not yet been born. I mean, you know, there's empathy. I understand what's going on. Like 
in this movie, I was able to, you know, feel everything that I'm supposed to feel. But the world is so much different right now than it was <laughs> five, six years ago. Yeah. And I don't want to belittle any of the trauma that the character experiences in this film. And I don't mean to belittle any other traumatic experience anybody may have gone through with what I'm about to say. But it was hard to not see parallels between what she is doing in that movie and what basically my and many other parents' existences have been for the past year. My youngest daughter has not been able to play with or visit anybody outside of our house for almost a year now. And she hasn't been outside of our apartment in since just before Christmas because we're in LA. It, the numbers are scary here and people are not taking it seriously outside. <laughs> we, we have a balcony so she can get outside and like have fresh air and sunlight and stuff like that. But we, we used to go up to the park every day and we can't do that anymore. And it hits her every once in a while what she has lost. But she's also four. And so I do things like we, well, she has a, a cardboard box house that I keep adding onto. It's three rooms now. And love that. we have like, we make games. Like my, my partner made a beanbag toss game. Like our Halloween, we couldn't go out trick or treating. So we just had it like carnival games in our apartment and a pinata. And we just like made it a huge day, but her last birthday, no family, no visits. We did FaceTime. It was just, we had to do it here at the house. And it is a question that I have that this movie is also addressing is how do you prepare a child for the world without either lying to them or making them scared of the world? Like how do I, or any other parent explain to a four-year-old who has no concept that we can't go outside because of this pandemic without making her afraid of ever seeing any other people? Like I don't, yeah. I, eventually this will pass. There'll be a normal we'll have a, <laughs> we'll have a vaccine and this can, you know, p the world can go back to some sort of normal, but how do I like, how do we navigate this time without completely like terrifying her or other children of other people and, you know, the things we used to do. And that's one of the reasons this movie really like resonated with me this time is because I felt like like I could see that in this movie, like that, that that's something that this movie is addressing that is now so specific to my life. <laughs> Absolutely. And, you know, in the film, she's, she's finding that balance, especially when she first tells Jack about the outside world, she's finding that balance of there's hope, you know, there is something outside, things are going to change, but also what if it doesn't change, you know, and this is, yeah, this is our world. And, you know, she's trying to do all that she can, but I totally understand, you know, it's it's all they have are those four walls and that is where their life has to be. But she does then end up creating this hope, you know, no, there is an outside. There is not just outer space after this room. And that's that does make it heartbreaking as well because at first when she's telling Jack about all these things, we have no idea that, there's going to be a plan to get him out or that is ever going to change. But there's a little sort of, I don't know what you'd call it, like a little hint that things are going to change when Jack is, I don't know if it's a voiceover or if he's reading his book out loud, but he's reading Alice in Wonderland. And they kind of focus in on a line that Alice in Wonderland in the book says, 
no things were ever impossible. And I just think like, I don't know, I was thinking this before I came on the podcast, <laughs> you know, if that's one of the books that Jack has and it's maybe maybe he reads it quite a lot or, you know, they don't have a lot of things in room, maybe Joy has read it to Jack. And that line, no things were ever impossible, if that is being read to you so much or you're hearing it so much, that's got to get into your subconscious. And I think for me, I mean, I've just like made this up in my head, but for me, I was like, this leads to there being an escape for Jack. And I just think there is so much hope that I was clinging on to in this film. Like his optimism is infectious enough to kind of carry you through the rougher parts of this movie. There's a line the doctor says later on, the doctor says that the best thing she did was she got him out of there while he was still plastic. He misinterprets as the doctor saying he's not real. But of course, the yeah. doctor is saying he's young enough to be able to form new perceptions of the world around him. Obviously, like there's going to there's going to be something here he carries with him for the rest of his life. But also he he's young enough. He, he given the right environment, which it luckily seems like he is going into by the end of this movie he will also be able to grow past it, which is not really the case for Joy because she's older, she gets out, and she kind of like, like Jack blossoms outside of room, mm -hmm. and Joy kind of regresses and starts to close herself off, which I think is, I mean, it's so completely understandable, right? She's lost seven years of her life. She looks at those pictures and what she says about like her friends just went on with their lives. <laughs> like their friends got to just, you know, not 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 that they forgot about her, but that they were just able to like go on like the world hadn't ended. And in, in a way it had ended for her until mm -hmm. Jack came along. Completely. And I think, you know, after we get through the first few days of them being out of room, Jack is so full of wonder and things start to get exciting for him but as you said it's the opposite for joy because she's going back to this world that she thought she knew and actually so much has changed you know her parents have divorced you know the hammock that she talks about so fondly is not there anymore and things are scary again for her so it kind of is a little bit of a role, role reversal that's such a hard thing to say a role reversal because Jack goes from being so scared about the world when he first learns about it and having to escape to being the one on the flip side who actually provides joy with so much strength and wisdom for her healing and getting used to a world that she thought she knew and it turns out she really didn't. This relationship between the two of them, in a way, Joy, when when she's hospitalized after uh, she commits suicide, or not commits, she attempts suicide, and she's hospitalized in a way, and and Jack misses her and is very angry that she won't come home, and she's kind of gone for the from the movie for a little while, like that break, it, it was so important for their for their relationship because it loosens that bond between them just enough it breaks what could have been a very unhealthy and codependent relationship because in room and kind of like shortly after, but she loses it quick, pretty quickly after she leaves. But in room, Jack is all she has to, 
to hold on to. Without Mm -hmm. Jack, you can see that she would not have kept her sanity. She may not have even been alive after seven years if Jack hadn't come along. She needs him just as much as he needs her. And they're so close that you, you could see a possibility of them just like never being able to be apart. Like, like in the hospital, how he is always like hiding in her whenever new people come around. Like he, he, he always just goes to hide or curls up in a ball, but her absence allows him to kind of like fully blossom and realize that there's a lot of wonderful things out there. And her absence also allows her to realize she can get back to some sort of normal life. Completely. And I think what is a huge sort of help to Jack in these moments is that scene where Leo, the mum's new partner. The best. So, so, so good. He notices Jack at the top of the stairs and he's just sort of, oh, I wonder if anyone will play with me. Oh, I've got some stuff in the kitchen. You know, he doesn't force it on Jack. He knows that he's going through. He's kind of dealing with that first break away from his mother. And then, you know, he's not forceful on him. He really lets Jack make his own decisions. And I just think that is such a beautiful scene. It's so short. And, you know, compared to all the other drama that goes on in this film, it really should be almost an insignificant scene, but it is so, so special. And I just think the way that Leo and can't remember her name, but the grandma deal with Joy being away is just beautiful and so essential for Jack's growth. Um, And then, of course, when at the start, you know, when they're first out, the grandma says, oh, we'll cut that hair of yours tomorrow. And they've literally just got home. I thought, oh God, is she going to be a little bit too overbearing and overwhelming for them? But no, she treats him in such a respectful way and she really accelerates his growth, but gives him the time that he needs. And, you know, when she does chop off his ponytail because he wants it to give to Ma for strength, I thought that was that was beautiful as well. Yeah, there's so many good touches in here. Like all of the characterizations are great. Everybody seems to react in a believable way. I I kind of feel like William H. Macy is maybe the one standout just because he he he's not really in the movie. He kind of comes in just enough to be very uncomfortable with his daughter and not be yeah. able to look in their eyes. And then he, he's gone. But Leo is such like and you're uh, Nancy, Joan Allen is is the grandmother. Nancy. Yeah. <laughs> uh, she she clashes with Joy. But you can see that there's just like, like these people don't know how to react. Like once, once the relief of her being home has, has faded, these people just don't know how to talk. (laughs) And so nobody is a villain in this movie. The closest is William H. Macy. And he's not even painted as a villain. He's just painted as like, he is unable to cope. Uh, Well, no, the the villain obviously is old Nick. I'm just saying in the family. (laughs) Yeah, 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 completely. And I wrote the same thing and like the noted the same scene in my notes about Leo because Leo is like talking to somebody and he turns around and he sees Jack is kind of hiding against the wall mm-hmm. at the top of the stairs. And so he pretends to not notice him. Like he, he avoids eye contact whenever talking to him for a while. And you're right. It's such a beautiful way he handles it. He's so supportive of Nancy, you know, when the, conversation is getting heated with William H. Macy's character he just kind of like 
looks in her eyes and holds her hand at the dinner table while they're they're having this like loud conversation around him he he really stood out to me this time as as such like a great person to be in this in this situation like the kind of person that you'd want to have like around you if you ever came out of some traumatic incident yeah he's completely the voice of reason without actually saying much at all what was really funny to me when i looked into this is that the actor uh tom mccamus he actually originally auditioned for old nick no way yeah which is is crazy to think about because of how how like warm he is these scenes but also i could totally see him being very creepy <laughs> like if he if he wanted to he he kind of has that look like he could turn it on at least as an actor a really great yeah. choice i'm glad they they gave him the other role yeah definitely and i think bringing the dog in with jack as well it just brings another sense of freedom and then jack obviously starts playing with the other kids in their neighborhood and you just feel like a sense of relief because you think finally this child has what could be perceived as like a normal childhood you know I mean I don't know what normal is but (laughs) you know a kind of a storybook childhood you know he's out playing with friends he's you know he's asking questions all the time and he just he seems to really have such strong connections with every single character and I thought it was even so nice when we first see Jack with Nancy out of the car and he shouts over to the neighbour and only a couple of scenes before he's completely curled up by Joy and won't speak to anyone and he'll only whisper to Joy in front of other people so his growth is just it happens so quickly and it is so nice to see that you know there's still this optimism from for him like yes the trauma of the past five years will have had such an impact on his life but he's so optimistic and he's seen the good in everything yeah well that's kind of what joy was able to do is by keeping him protected is she did give him a happy childhood like there's that last scene in the movie where he wants to go see room again and he remarks like it looks so small and it doesn't look the same yeah. but of course i mean it doesn't because they've removed everything for evidence but he's he's grown obviously like the the movie we can talk about all of the the nuances about codependency or growth or how to view the world, but the movie is kind of like, you know, just at its core, it is just a metaphor for raising children. Like room is basically the womb that he's in and he like goes out into the world and how scary that is for joy and how she's really not sure what to do or even what, if what she's doing is correct it's an awful, awful situation. And he, she's successfully hidden all of it from him. There's that scene where she gives the interview, the the TV interview and the, um, the, the interviewer very unfairly, I think starts to kind of like ask her, like, do you think that was the right choice to raise a child in that environment? Why didn't you ever try to convince him to, or old Nick to take Jack to a hospital so he could have a chance at a normal childhood and you can see it like it really, I think that's what leads to Joy attempting suicide. Yeah. But it, it, I, I think the, 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 the life of Jack, how he reacts to everything kind of proves that she made the right choice. Like, yeah, it was 
you could say it was it was a risky choice, but it, like she kept him safe and happy, and also kept herself alive in a situation where she might have actually just ended up dying alone. Yeah, completely. And I think you're so right in that interview when the reporter or interviewer asks, you know, oh, could you not have done this? Could you not have done that? Up until then, everyone has celebrated what she's done and she's got him out. You know, the doctor says the best thing you did was get him out. There's that whole mob of people waiting for them when they arrive back home shouting like, we love you, Jack, and we love you, Joy, or whatever. And everything's a big celebration. And then this one reporter fires into her and there is so much behind Brie Larson's eyes. I just you know, there was so much turmoil going on for her and you just know that she's she's not ready to to talk about that or to be challenged. And, you know, I don't think she was ready for that interview, but she did it and it totally leads to her attempting suicide. And I just think it's a, it's a definite breaking point for her and just her whole, her whole journey as, a character and the acting that she does in this film is just incredible and you know she was rewarded for that with so many awards uh, that were well deserved but that part especially is just oh, heartbreaking it is it, it is kid performers can be so tricky but i really i mean i was really impressed with jacob Tremblay. obviously he got a lot of acclaim for it as well mm-hmm. but he's he kind of said that it wasn't a hard, like I, I read some articles and he, he said it wasn't actually that hard because all he had to do was play a happy kid. <laughs> like he didn't have to, like he, he, his character was kind of unaware of the darker things going on in the movie. So he, he just had to play it happy all the time, but he, he puts a lot into that. Like it all, it, it never feels fake or forced like a lot of kid acting can. I read um, there were, Variety had an interesting article about pretty much like the set design of Room, but it talked a little bit about how uh, their process as actors that like Brie Larson, she discussed her character with uh, with trauma experts and nutritionists. So she she put herself on like kind of a really restrictive, unhealthy diet for a little while and avoided the sun so that. Yeah. She would she would just have that pale and unhealthy look, but also uh, they they filmed this in Canada and she spent three weeks prior to filming with Jacob Tremblay like working on a believably close relationship so that they would like just kind of naturally look like the way the way he always runs to her or she runs to him yeah. and they they hug it it doesn't look like actors it looks like relatives like people very closely bonded completely they have such an amazing connection and I think as well even when you know when he's curling up to her and you know he his home you know home was room but actually home is with Ma and that you just feel that bond completely and it is nice when you know he ventures out and he starts talking to other people but they're He's an incredible actor as well. And I think what got it for me was when he first unrolls from the carpet in the back of the truck and he sees the sky properly for the first time. And there's that shot of him from above just looking up at the sky and there's so much in his eyes. Like, I know 
if if he said it was like an easier job and you know he was just being happy but that is he has something that is very very special yeah and he he can't even like breathe properly it, mm-hmm. it's so overwhelming to him it's a really great moment he plays it really well so one of the things i was also reading about the like the set design is that they they built one set for room instead of having different sets for mm-hmm. different scenes and they built it out of these one foot by one foot panels that could all be removed and replaced so that the camera like there were off there were often other people in the room but the camera would yeah. often be outside of the room looking to like with just the lens poking ah. through oh my gosh that's and amazing i was reading that, that sometimes they would have to uh, up to eight people actually in the room while they're filming but I saw some shots and a lot of it was just like, yeah, there's just the camera is poking out through the floor. <laughs> Amazing. And, I'll need to check that out. Yeah, I can, I can post a link to the variety article. Like the, it was a lot of interview with the, the production designer and how they thought so, so fully about what that room would look like, keeping in mind, like what old Nick would have given them, what his financial situation would have been like, what his, just like what he would have thought, <laughs> like, um, yeah, and a lot of the props were actually built, or not built, but made by Jacob Tremblay and Brie Larson. Like they they made like those um, those tinfoil measuring cups. And, yeah, and the decorations, like the the caterpillar, they made out of eggshells and stuff yeah. like that. Like they all made it while they were doing the like that three week rehearsal, I guess. So that's amazing. Everything in that room. So it, they they were always like kind of focused on not breaking the illusion of that space for Jacob Tremblay. And, you know, it doesn't seem small to him, like we said before, until he goes back. But one thing that kind of struck me, and I only noticed it when I watched the film again last night, so for the the third time I'd watched it, was when they go back to see Room, they walk through Old Nick's house, and I don't understand why, because... You know, they they escaped out of the the side gate. You know, the gate was open. Yeah. And when they leave room again, the side gate is open and they go out that. But the police walk them through old Nick's house. And I just couldn't understand why that was. But then I kind of thought about it and I thought, you know, this shows them that old Nick had all of this space all to himself and they were in the tiniest space possible he's such Um, a (laughs) yeah oh i know i know he's just he's horrible and i like that i like that they don't give him a lot of screen screen time i like that old nick just dropped jack and left you know we do hear on the news that there's been someone arrested but we don't go too much into that and I, i like that because this is their story this is jack and joy's story so i think that was a really good decision from the director and writer yeah it was it was perfect because you can see this as a like a a true crime film that does focus on the serial killer because that the serial killers are often like fetishized in this type of movie yeah where where you look at them and you're supposed to like kind of pick apart everything that they're doing and maybe it's supposed to look a little kind of cool and intimidating and he's just some schlub like he's He's just a not very smart guy who yeah, just happened upon the right person or the wrong person. I, kind of a weird way to say that, but you know what I mean? 
where yeah. he just kind of like happened into this and he did something horrible and he's able to keep it going, but he's nobody special. Like we don't even, we, we don't even see him most of the time. It takes a long time before we actually see his face. It's every other time we just see him come in through the slacks and we don't see his upper body or anything like that. But yeah. I'm, I'm very glad they did not focus too much on him. And I'm glad we never see him again after he drops Jack. Completely. Like, they mentioned that there's a, that he's maybe going to try and cop a plea and they're talking about like their legal expenses going forward, but he's never a part of the story after that. And you know, when Brie Larson or Joy does get out of the hospital and everything, I don't think it's mentioned after that. I mean, there's not much left of the film after that, but you know, when that optimism comes back in and Jack has his voiceover saying, you know, uh, we don't know what we like, so we try everything. <laughs> and the music is so triumphant and powerful. You just think, yes, they are going to live a happy life. And I was so content with that ending. Like you just saying that, that's such a, like a cute, but just a great line, like a, yeah. a great read on it, a great way to end the movie. Cause it's so happy right then. I mean, I, I, said it earlier and i was not joking twice in this movie just uncontrollably ugly so sobbing <laughs> like mm -hmm. watching it by myself in the living room and it's the scene where where jack has gotten out and he's reunited with his mom like his uh, joy comes running out of the oh my god out of the yeah. backyard and like their reunion their reunion right then i mean i'd seen this movie before i know he makes it <laughs> i know yeah. i knew he was gonna get out I was getting butterflies in my stomach that entire driving scene where he's in the carpet and like when he finds the person and the person like he can't quite communicate and then there were drive when he can't remember his mom's name and he lost the note and yeah. like the cop can't get anything out of it. I was like, I was so on the edge of my seat and I knew how it was going to end, but I was just like, I was so sucked into this movie. Yeah. Oh, that bit for me as well is just that is actually one part where I did really notice the music when they are in the when Jack's in the police car and you know he's speaking to the officer and the, the officer in the front who's driving is kind of dismissive and just thinking you know when I think he says when child services or he's slept or something uh, we'll get more out of him but this officer knows that there's more here that she can get out. And then when she makes that that connection in her head with the stop signs, the music builds up and it's so it's so optimistic. And then when Joy runs out and everything goes slow motion and then you don't hear the dialogue and the music is just so loud over it, it feels it feels overwhelming to watch. And I just think oh, hats off to Lenny Abrahamson, this film that is one of the defining moments of this film. It's incredible. Side note here, that cop in the driver's seat, like I was so angry at him this time. Yeah. How, how he just like every horrible bit of information that's coming out of this kid. And he's just like, let's just drop him off. Come on. This is useless. Yeah. Oh, I was so angry. He does not care one could, bit for him. I, it's I, just a job. Could you just imagine this kid just goes to child services. He's never going to talk to anybody again and they're never going to find Ma. Ugh. That's not where the movie goes. So I don't know why I'm even thinking about it right now. <laughs> I know, but it just, it does. It spikes your anger when he's just so dismissive of anything Jack says or the other officer says. 
And had she not, you know, pursued what Jack was saying and been so gentle and understanding with him, the movie would have went completely differently. So, yeah, that's a really an all in scene. Can't help myself but cry during it. (laughs) It, it, I mean, it's a, it's an emotional movie. I, I had that, you know, like I was saying that drained, but also elated, like kind of like, I don't know, like sometimes I get out of a movie and you just kind of like, it, it it's a cleansing cry <laughs> and mm-hmm. you're, you're like, Oh, that was great. Like I got to tell people about this experience. Mm-hmm. It's, it's one of those films that after I've watched it, I always tell people, I always recommend it. That was why when I watched it, I think it was last week or earlier this week, and then my mom and dad were looking for a film to watch. I was like, you have to watch Room. You're watching Room with me. <laughs> like, this is a film everyone has to see in their life. And, oh, yeah, I just love when a film affects me like that. Yeah, no, me too, me too. You know, my my oldest daughter is 16, and they watched that. They watched Room in school last year. I, I really? It was just like kind of a, the right before break, and they didn't have any assignments, so it's one of those things the teacher puts a movie on. And I am not upset, you know, 16 or 15, she can watch what she wants. I I trust her, you know, Mm -hmm. I'm not upset by that, but just what a weird decision to play, to play this in class. Yeah. It's, it's a heavy film (laughs) to put on (laughs) right before like end of term break, you know, enjoy your holidays. Here's a film that is just utterly heartbreaking. (laughs) Yeah. Well, um, do you, do you have anything else in your notes? I, I, I think we might be ready to move on from this one. Yeah, I think I've covered everything uh, that I had written down. I feel like I could go on and on about this film. It's a good movie. It's a great movie. Sometimes people can be kind of scared away from a very emotional movie, but this is like, it's heavy, but it doesn't, like, it's not miserable. It isn't setting out to make you feel bad. And the ending, the ending rounds it off so nicely. It doesn't leave you in like a a down state or anything. Send you here for life. That's exactly what they take. I believe in two things. Discipline. Help me! In the Bible. Here you'll receive both. Andy came to Shawshank Prison in 1947. Why'd you do it? I didn't, since you asked. (laughs) You can fit right in. I must admit, I didn't think much of Andy the first time I laid eyes on him. He had a quiet way about him. A walk and a talk that just wasn't normal around here. There are places in the world that aren't made out of stone. There's something inside that they can't touch. What are you talking about? Hope. Let me tell you something, my friend. Hope is a dangerous thing. Damn it, dude, friend, you're putting me behind! Hope can drive a man insane. You better be sick or dead in there, I kid you not. Better get used to that idea. Oh, my holy God. I guess it comes down to a simple choice, really. Get busy living. You get busy dying. Get busy living. Or get busy dying. That's damn right.
The Shawshank Redemption tells the story of Andy Dufresne, Tim Robbins, a young banker in 1947 who finds himself serving two life sentences for the murder of his wife and her lover. The film follows Andy as he navigates prison life over nearly two decades and charts his growing and sustained friendship with another lifer, Red, played by Morgan Freeman. It's The Shawshank Redemption. It's one of the most beloved films of all time. Everybody knows it. I can kind of like dispense with the rest of the plot. So this is a movie, like a lot of people, I did not see this in theaters. I was 16 when it came out. It was kind of a flop in theaters, but it really made its name on video. And I, so I, I watched this, I would have been about 16 when I watched this. And yeah, it, it's a movie that I loved and I watched several times over the years, but this is actually my first time revisiting it in maybe literally decades. Uh, it's just one of those movies that you kind of feel like you've seen it because it, it's, you know, it, it's on cable all the time. You know, I go in a break room at work and there's there it's playing on TV. So I'd catch a yeah. few minutes of it. You just kind of feel like you've seen it, even if you haven't seen it in a while. Uh, how about you? I know you've, you've seen this one. Do um, you have any yes. specific history with the Shawshank Redemption? So I can't actually remember when I first saw it. I think it must have been maybe even three years ago and I watched it and I remember thinking like oh I'm so glad I watched that you know it was one of those someone had said to me like I can't believe you've not seen the Shawshank Redemption <laughs> yeah. so I watched it and was completely wild by it um, and then I watched it at the start of this week and I had actually forgotten so much about it but I was really glad that I had because I was so glad to watch it and feel like it was the first time almost again. I kind of remembered most of this movie because it was just so indelible to me. I am a humongous Stephen King fan. By the time this came out, I had actually read it. I, I started reading Stephen King in elementary school and I kind of like spent the next couple of years going through everything I could get my hands on. So I was familiar with this when I saw the movie, when I finally saw the movie and it's just kind of like, it was kind of like just seeped into my brain. Like I remembered everything. There, there's a, couple of surprises here and there. For one, I was kind of surprised to realize Andy isn't the main character. <laughs> like Red is the main character. Yeah. And I rem everybody remembers Morgan Freeman's narration, but I also remembered Andy being a bigger part and he's kind of quiet. He's kind of just viewed through the eyes of all of the other characters. And that really surprised me. I, I kind of had remembered Tim Robbins being the one to carry the movie. But no, it's, yeah. it's all about Red. I know. And I actually... Um, just when you're saying that, I actually thought the group of guys as a whole were all together more often in it. But you're right, it's it's more about Red and then obviously Andy as well. But yeah, I just kind of thought there were more there were more scenes of the group all together, but that is a kind of smaller part of the film as a whole. Yeah, because the movie is, if nothing else, this is a movie about friendship which yeah. is it's, it's such a weird setting for a movie about friendship because the movie comes very dangerously close to making prison look nice like honestly you forget that these guys are in prison for so much of it yeah because they're they're like well a lot of that is because andy kind of you know he gets them that that beer up on the roof when they're yeah. they have the work detail and he gets the library and he's kind of like helping them all and so he makes it better, but still like there's, there is 
camaraderie between all these people. Like they all seem like very genial. Like they, they seem like a, a swell bunch of guys. <laughs> yeah. There's, there's so much that goes on and I had written it in my notes, like that you trust, you trust what Red says so much and you trust what Andy says and you know like he's always got a plan and and everything and then you kind of forget what these guys are imprisoned for I mean we don't know like you know whether they did it or not you you just totally forget that these guys are meant to have killed people <laughs> at some points and you're just so drawn in by their truth and their stories I mean a lot of it comes down to the actors that he's chosen like Morgan Freeman, it, it, especially at this period, he just like exudes kind of like a, a moral gravitas. He seemed like a trustable person, right? At this, yeah. And I mean, it's Morgan Freeman. This is kind of early in his career, so he hadn't quite nailed in that persona. But I mean, he he'd been around, so he, yeah. But even like William Sadler, who often play William Sadler often plays a villainous character. Mm-hmm. He's just. He, he is the guy that kind of has a little bit of a stutter, and he, but he's a good hearted guy. They're all, they all seem like they are, but Red has that moment, especially towards the end when he's on having his final meeting with the parole review board, where he's just like, what I really wish is I, I wish I could go and talk to that younger man who made all of those mistakes and tell him how things are really going to work out. It is like these people are in here for the rest of their life. But it does seem like for almost all of them, whatever their circumstances, it was just like in Reds, it seemed like it was just like a foolish mistake as a kid. I mean, it yeah. never says what Red did, but if he's in there serving a life sentence, it's got to be murder. <laughs> yeah, um, completely. And I think in that in that parole meeting, obviously that's like a big change for him and he, he gets out. But um, it's such a contrast to the first one we see because he seems so small and so timid in the in the first parole meeting and you know it wasn't what I was expecting when I was watching it and then he obviously goes out into the yard and there he is he's taken back his power he's back in his life as he knows it and I think that's such a huge thing in this film that they create a life in that prison and a life that actually a lot of them enjoy maybe the most tragic character in the movie Brooks, the older guy, the library, and he he rescues that bird. The bird. (laughs) In the novella, he's kind of a minor character. In the movie, they give him his own passage. Like the movie spends a long time tracking what happens to him after he leaves prison. I mean, not a long time. It's a short time in the movie, but when you're talking about like screen time and every minute counts, they spend a lot of minutes on him. Yeah, it is such a tragic story because he just he's so old. He's been in prison most of his life over 50 years, I think. And he's an old man. He's arthritic. There's a line about how he saw one car once when he was a kid and now they're everywhere. (laughs) And it's like, yeah, the world is is so alien to him. And he says like he's just he's tired of living afraid all the time. And so he ends up committing suicide in that halfway house. Like, but before he gets out of prison, like he's holding the knife to the guy's neck. And he's like, if I, if I kill him, maybe they'll let me stay. Yeah. <laughs> like he just, he can't imagine leaving. And he, I mean, even red has that moment too, where he's thinking about ways he can get sent back to prison. Cause he just knows it's like, mm-hmm. it's been so long. 
what am I going to do? How am I going to yeah. fit in with this world? They all don't seem to have family anymore. Yes, yeah, suddenly Brooks was put outside his comfort zone, and you know he was he was respected in prison. You know nobody nobody did him any harm. You know he went round, he had his library, had the little bird, and it felt like he was protected in a way. But as soon as he got out into the outside world, you know, he's working at the the supermarket, and you know he's been told like double bag. The lady told you, and all this, and he is. I wouldn't say he's being mistreated, but he is. Be, he's been thrown into a much harsher reality, and it just breaks him. I mean, I would go so go as far to say that yeah, he's being mistreated. That his boss was being a real jerk to him. Yeah, yeah, you're and, right. I mean, he's an old guy. You can see him struggling with the bag. He's got arthritis in both of his hands, and they they've got him bagging groceries. It's just that's mean. Yeah. It's really heartbreaking as well. You know, when Brooks has this voiceover saying how he just like, you know, couldn't cope with with the life on the outside and it wasn't what he thought it was going to be. And then when we find out that that actually is a letter to the other guys, I just, I think like that just shows the connection. And I just felt his his depiction of the outside world I just honestly wanted to give him a big hug and he calls the prison home. There was no other home for him outside prison. And yeah, just like when when you realise that that's a letter back to them, I just felt so, so upset. I know, it's, it's, it's heartbreaking. That scene when he's on the park bench and he's like, he's feeding the birds and he has that line about how he, he keeps thinking maybe that, that crow he saved as will come by and say hi but he never does yeah and you just see people just like walking by him i mean you could say this about everybody about human existence these people just walking by him unaware of what this person's life has been unaware of what his situation is and you do kind of wish there was somebody there to just give him a hug and like say hey come on over for dinner yeah yeah or just ask about his story you know like build that connection but it's true he seems completely invisible in this world um and it's just it's devastating but I do love that he wrote Brooks was here above the window I thought that was a really nice touch and it kind of it kind of I don't know it gave me a sense of like his kind of inner bad boy like vandalizing yeah. halfway house <laughs> and I think in a way well I don't think he would have known that any of the guys would have seen it but I think he would have hoped that if any of the guys get out on parole, that they'll they'll be re- reunited and kind of feel some warmth from that. Yeah, I felt it was just like, I mean, he's he's he talks about how he was somebody he had he had respect. He was an, an educated man in prison. Out in the real world, he's he's nothing. He doesn't have any family. He's got a job he can't do. He's living in a halfway house and afraid all the time. I felt like it was him, kind of making a statement like somebody's going to know I was here. Somebody's going to know I existed because in the letter, it doesn't say like, he's like, nobody's going to care that I'm gone. Nobody's going to really worry themselves over this old guy. Mm-hmm. I think uh, um, what shows even Brooks's connection with the guys, you know, when they receive the letter and they are so hurt by it. And then when they're creating the library and they have the memorial for Brooks, I think yeah. it just, it shows how much of a bond they all have in the prison which 
you can't quite believe would happen when you see the opening scene well not the opening scene but the first time when Andy enters the prison and all the other prisoners are tormenting them and you know betting on who's going to crumble in that you can't believe that that world has led to some of the bonds that we see later in the film yeah well even then in that scene when they're all betting on who's going to crack first that group does seem to kind of like be decent in a way it, it like whatever however you want to judge decency in prison where they all just kind of seem like they're easy going with each other they're not actually actively trying to mess with anybody until william sadler sadler's character keeps tormenting the the well they call him fat ass that's his only name in the credits where he keeps tormenting him trying to make him be the first one to cry so that he wins the bet and that leads that ends up leading to that guy being killed because he's like causing such a scene that the guard Clancy Brown beats him so badly he he dies in the infirmary because there's no doctor on on duty that late at night yeah. and you can see just as Clancy Brown's about to start like beating on him that William Sadler is starting to feel bad and he's like oh come on man just shut up just, mm-hmm. just be quiet and then you know you can see it affects them all the next day they they kind of like it's prisons. They all seem used to it. They're all like, they, they kind of harden up pretty quick, but you can see they're all like taken aback by the fact that he died that night. Yeah, definitely. And it sets up the brutality of the prison and what could happen at any moment, which is why I think some of Andy's actions seem so bold. I mean, his whole, his whole journey is bold, of course, but, you know, when he's approaching officer Hadley about the 35 grand that he's like worrying about paying tax on or what he should do with it and you just see him going up and you think no 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 you're you're gonna you're gonna get absolutely beaten they might even kill you yeah so I think that brutality in the start does set that up this movie had such a a like kind of like a studio glow to it like it kind of feels like a Hollywood version of the story that I, I often forget how brutal it gets, particularly yeah. in the beginning with and Andy and the sisters, the guys that keep assaulting yeah. him. Holy cow. That like, like I, think, I haven't seen it in a long time. So I, I knew, remembered all this from the movie and I remember some of it from the, the novella. I forgot just how much it, it it's in there. And I was watching it with my oldest, this time she had never seen it before and i was just like oh i don't remember all this and I, like i said i don't she can she can deal with it <laughs> she is yeah. old enough and mature enough but i was still like aware of it in a way maybe i wasn't as a young man by the way my my oldest daughter she said it was good which as a 16 year old means she really liked it <laughs> yeah <laughs> but this movie it's crazy because this movie was kind of a flop like it didn't make its money back in theaters Mm. but then a couple of years later it it's like one of the most rented purchased you know vhs or dvd at the time and it's been on the, the like number one spot of imdb's top 250 for i don't know forever it's always in the top five but right now it is still at the number one spot i just had to go look because i was like oh i wonder if yeah people because and that's one of the reasons i i hadn't seen it in so long is because i remember liking it a lot but then I was like, as time went on and its reputation grew, I kept like thinking to myself, well, is it really that good? Do I like it as much as everybody is saying? 
yeah there's so, nothing worse as well when a film's been totally hyped up and then you watch it again and you're like oh, it wasn't actually that good yeah it's like, so, like i can't believe it flopped what 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 were audiences looking for like you can't you can't oh, i can't fault this film no it, it it totally held up for me like i was so glad that i chose this movie because you you chose room and then immediately i was like oh wait what do I pair with room? Because like all of my choices were, were like, that seems a little disrespectful to kind of the very real emotion in room. Like I couldn't think of anything that really fit. And then mm -hmm. I thought, Oh, Shawshank Redemption, that, that seems like a good choice. And I was worried how it would hold up and it held up great. Like I, I loved every minute of it. I was like, this is very good filmmaking. This is very good storytelling. I don't know if I'd say it's the number one movie of all time, but I, I mean, if it's somebody's favorite movie, I'm not going to look at them and go like, oh, you have no taste. <laughs> yeah. And I think it, it gets you when a film is, I mean, how long is it? Is it two and a half hours or two hours? Yeah. It's um, like two hours, 20 some minutes. Yeah. I think when a film is that long and you're watching it and you don't notice the time going by, the filmmakers have done a fantastic job anyway, but the content of this film is just fantastic from the bonds to the things that you find out Andy has has done to to even the setting and the costumes it's just oh, it's amazing yeah and about the things we find out Andy has done he is such an unknowable presence in the movie that I remembered him being the main character of yeah <laughs> and you know, like everybody, you only see him, how the guards see him, how the warden sees him, how Red sees him. And Red says several times that he's not sure what Andy was thinking or what he was doing. Like the beer thing. He's like, I think he did it just to feel normal. He's not sure. He's kind of like seeing him off there in the corner by himself and developing this friendship, but also like not knowing him, not knowing what's going on. It seems as well that Andy is actually the only person that Red doesn't have figured out. And he's he's keeping Red on his toes, but not in a not in a negative way. He's not scared of him. He's so intrigued by him. And you know, Andy, he always has a plan. But from the start, I didn't I didn't get that. I didn't get that he always had a plan. But then as the film went on, I was like, you know, everything he is doing is leading to something bigger. And or more meaningful for him. Yeah, because he he gets that idea to start digging the tunnel very early on. <laughs> like it, you know, it's a 19 yeah. year plan basically <laughs> to to get out. And I I kind of forgotten like how long he had been doing it. That that's one thing I, I really appreciated about this movie is how elegantly time passes. Like it never it never has a title card come up saying 1960 whatever. And a couple of times Red says in 1967, such and such happened. So you know that it's been years, but it, it never, it, it kind of just glides over it, like through editing and you see very subtle old age makeup and like graying in Tim Robbins hair mainly, but you can see like there's lines around his eyes. It's just kind of like the passage of time in this movie. It flows in a very interesting way. Yeah. Like where you, it you makes kind of, it effortless for the yeah. viewers as well. Frank Darabont has a history with Stephen King. He's he's done four Stephen King projects, three of them theatrical films, one of them a short film. Like one of his first projects was um, 
uh, he did a dollar baby. Do you, do you know this term? I don't know if you know. Well, Stephen King will option his short stories. He has a, a pretty big list of the stories that are available. But if you're a filmmaker, you can buy the rights to it for a dollar. Oh. And he does it to kind of like foster like up and coming filmmakers. He has rules about it. You can't, you can't display it for profit. Like you can do it as a calling card. Basically you can have a premiere where you just kind of show it to people, but you can't make money off of it and you cannot make it commercially available. Frank Darabont did one called the woman in the room, which is a a short story just about a, a guy and dealing with his mother dying. It's, it's not horror. It's a very little domestic drama, just a couple pages long. He made this like half hour short film out of it and it impressed Stephen King enough that it's one of only, I think, two that Stephen King allowed to be released on video or any format that people could see. Wow. And so there was a VHS. I think you can find it on on YouTube. Then like Frank Darabont's, ne- like he, he had wanted to make Shawshank Redemption. He basically bought the rights for $5,000 and Stephen King never cashed the check. <laughs> He's like... <laughs> He's like, nobody's going to make this movie. I'm just, okay. And and it turned out to be IMDb's number one movie of all time. <laughs> I, oh, I love that. I love it. And I love when people think, you know, it's it's not going to, it's not going to work. It's not going to hold up. You know, it's going to be dated or whatever. And then it has a legacy like this. But you're so right with the passing of time in this film. It is just... It, it, you don't have to think about it but the years go by and I I totally forgot about that little um oh, what is the tool that he, <laughs> he oh, has the, sort of the rock hammer the rock hammer that's what it's called I totally forgot about that I just kind of focused on you know he's making the little chess pieces and that's how he's biding his time I thought he's just actually he's just living his life he's just enjoying it he's building this library he's doing things to move the prison forward and create a life for them to be honest I had totally forgotten about how the escape happens when I watched it again and when it came to it and Andy was gone and the the hole in the wall was revealed I was just like oh my god the work he has been putting in how did he do it I have so many questions <laughs> watching it this time I was kind of wondering when Andy actually thought he was going to be leaving the prison because it kind of seems like he's clearly been working with this in his mind for almost two decades mm-hmm. uh, I don't I don't actually think it was his plan when he got the rock hammer but I think that was just kind of like he got the idea after he was able to get that chunk out of his wall on accident. Yeah. But still, then I wonder like, okay, he's been setting up this fake identity. Was he maybe going to wait until he got more money? Cause it seems like he was just kind of spurred into action, into leaving by the warden's actions in killing the kid. Yeah. Like, the kid that kind of could provide him is an alibi. Tommy? Sure. It's Tommy. His name is. I, yeah. I just Tommy. remember. The, yeah. Yeah. You're right. Tommy. Uh, I get the impression that that action on the warden's behalf spurred Andy into kind of bringing about what he was going to do. But it also seems like he's, he's perfectly content in prison and red actually says that where he's like, he, I've never seen a man look like he's just walking through the yard, taking a leisurely stroll. It looked like nothing was affecting him. Yeah. 
and he said something about um it was like he had an invisible coat that meant he like wasn't affected by this place or something or that would shield him from this place and there's so many beautiful descriptions of Andy that you just you realize the wonder that Red has over him he's just so intrigued by him and you don't you don't think Red is going to be that type of person he puts on quite a hard exterior from the start but Andy changes that and I think it's who Red has always been and I think Andy brings that out of Red yeah because Red definitely seems kind of resigned to staying in prison even when he gets rejected he comes out and he's just like uh, same shit different day like he doesn't he doesn't ever seem like he actually expects to get out when he's up for the parole board. I mean, it's, it's pretty explicit in the dialogue that Andy is kind of inspiring hope in him or kind of talking to him that he needs to be hopeful about something. And that Andy seems for a while, like he is content getting hope out of helping the other convicts, like getting their GEDs, improving the library, getting them beer every once in a while. But obviously he's had this plan and it seems like it's an escape, but it also seems like, like maybe his friendship with red is keeping him there. Like he's, I mean, they, they do have like a real, a real connection, like a real friendship between the two of them. And when he, when he plays the music over the tannoy for all the guys and they say like, you know, for a moment, everyone or every man in Shawshank felt free you just think like he he puts he put himself at a huge risk by doing that and he turns it up louder when the warden gets annoyed at it and yeah. you just think he he does so much for everyone and he seems to you're right be content with with helping these guys on their journey and he seems to take nothing for himself we see it at the start when you know all the guys are drinking the beers and he's just sitting back appreciating what has happened but little did we know he's actually this like incredible mastermind with a plan all along yeah the title itself the shawshank redemption the movie is advertised it's got that poster which is the shot of him in the rain like after Mm -hmm. he's escaped and he's got his arms up and the movie the shawshank redemption and you think that's that's what it's about it's andy's redemption but watching it this time i was like oh my god no it is red's redemption because red's given up hope completely and yeah. Andy convinces him to try to, and hope for something better and hope for, you know, being free. Yeah. Uh, I think you see it as well. When Red does get his parole granted and he's on the bus, it, it mimics the, the scene that we saw Brooks on the bus and Brooks looked so, so scared and so confused at the outside world. When Red leaves... He is, there's excitement there. You, you see there's like a kind of, you know, getting to know the world and, you know, he goes to the halfway house. He has the same job as Brooks, but there's hope there in that man. And you're so right. Andy brings that out in him completely. And of course, when he goes and finds a letter, oh, it's just amazing. I, I just think it's, it's incredible and you know they could have when red finds that letter they could have filled that scene with him reading the letter out to himself or not even that i mean like 
commenting on how's he finding this letter how did Andy get it there you know all these questions going through his head but it was so still and so silent that it was just perfect for the first time he's not distracted by any outside world he's just focused on the connection of him and his friend and the wonder of how incredible Andy is and there's there's never any you know annoyance that Andy hid this from him or he's never annoyed that oh we could have all got out he's just in complete awe of him and it's a really beautiful friendship to piggyback off that a little bit the that they all could have gotten out I do watching (laughs) it this time I was like oh but I wanted like how great would it be if all of those convicts there were down in Mexico working on a little hotel in a charter fishing boat like like they Mm -hmm. all seem like I kind of want to see them just hanging out i want to see them off in the sunset together you know yeah because i mean they're horrible murderers in a past life but they all seem like decent people yeah Uh, i feel like andy has brought so much out in all of them you know he's helped so many people progress their education that they really wanted to do and actually when the prison is asking red you know do you feel rehabilitated and stuff the people that have rehabilitated or the person that's rehabilitated most of the prisoners is Andy. Yeah. This, this movie doesn't make a, a like a huge point of it, but it, like watching it now, all I, all I could think was just like, man, the prison system sucks. <laughs> like, yeah, <laughs> like the, the, the penal system for like, it does not care about rehabilitation. If it cared about it, they would have had that library there in the first place. It does seem, especially what we learn now in the last few years, prison is just there to keep people off in the corner and maybe get some cheap labor out of them. And it never makes a big point of it, but it is kind of a, a damning statement about what is yeah. what does prison do to, to people. They're just there until they're useless in society and then like kind of shoved out to take care of themselves. Yeah, with no support. And I think we see it as well when Andy's writing the letters every day and then he he had been writing two letters every day or he said he was going to. He was going to write two a week. Two two a week, that was it. And, um, you know, that pays off because the people he was writing to just got so annoyed. Like, they just (laughs) said, stop it. But it just shows that, you know, that prison themselves has never really put in any real effort to rehabilitate the prisoners. Yeah, no, definitely not. Um, so a couple of changes. This is actually like really loyal to the written word. It, it's it's a pretty good adaptation of what the novella is. Uh, a couple of the changes are Brooks is a very minor character in the novella, uh, has a different he, death. He dies, I think, in a nursing home. He doesn't commit suicide, I don't believe. Mm-hmm. And so that whole passage, they made him much of a bigger character, which I think great. It underlines so much about what this movie is about. Yeah. And they also combine several guards into the Clancy Brown character. And in the novella, as time passes, there are several wardens and they made him one warden in this, which I think was the right yeah. choice. It gives it gives a continuity of of, of villain in this More movie. More focus, yeah. I, I just want to talk a little bit about like Stephen King adaptations. Are, have you read much Stephen King or any Stephen King? I haven't read any Stephen King. Okay. So like I said, I, I've been reading him since I was 12. Mm-hmm. 
and I, I don't know why I always hem and haw about it. I, I think I can comfortably say he's my favorite author. Like there are, mm-hmm. are authors, I think, have written better books, but there's just something about how he's been such a consistent part of my life. Like I still read the new ones. And yeah. even if I don't like the book, I enjoy the act of reading it because I can just get, I can get right into what he's writing. It's just like, it, it, I don't know. I, I just connect to it so quickly and easily. <laughs> but his adaptations into film have been spotty at best. Like for, for every one that you can say is a great movie, there's probably a dozen terrible ones. Yeah. <laughs> and Frank Darabont really kind of gets what what you need to do to make a good Stephen King adaptation, which is like respect the written word, but also mm-hmm. not be afraid to change what Stephen King has written. There's a lot of directors who have have taken a Stephen King book or short story and just kind of like put the words that are in the Stephen King book onto screen. And that doesn't work because he says himself that he writes characters with incredibly exaggerated ways of speaking. And he says that's one of the reasons his books have been so popular is because it's, it's so exaggerated. People kind of like can get what that character is about right away, even though they don't Uh speak like a human would. So then when, when somebody films it and decides to just take that dialogue that no human would speak and make a human speak it, it's like, you can't connect. It doesn't work. And so he really keeps a lot of the book, but he also like, he realizes that sometimes to get to the heart of what works in the book, you have to get rid of some of the actual stuff. You have to change some of it for a film. I think that, that he's, he's one of the best at adapting. So Mike Flanagan's done it a few times recently and to similar success. Um, I just think that change with Brooks, like, you know, Brooks grown old and dying in a nursing home. I don't know. You know, he would have been surrounded by company, people caring for him. And we need that, that tug on our heartstrings because actually this is, this is probably closer to a reality and it does intensify the friendship and the bond they had and how much of a home they created at the prison. Yeah, that he's he's kind of been exiled from it. Yeah. And it, it's it's almost when people get paroled in this movie, it's almost an act of cruelty because like you're you're basically kicking them out of the only home they've had. Uh, it's kind of heartbreaking. I know. They've been torn from the world once when they go into prison. I mean, you know, whether they did their crimes or not, they've gone into a completely different reality, this unknown, that they're probably absolutely terrified for especially with the whole fresh fish metaphor and the tormenting at the start you know that and you know the the shower hose thing they're throwing the powder on them and everything it's so dehumanizing and then they're then getting put back in a world that they thought they knew it's kind of a parallel to room i suppose (laughs) yeah and they're going back into the the world it's just that's the scary part so yeah, it's it, it's awful when you go deep into it. It is, because Red has that line early on where he talks about the first night in prison being the worst because every part, your life has just been blown away in an instant and now you have nothing but time to think about it. Mm-hmm. And so you, these people that have been in there 20, 30, 50 years, 
especially they're, they're told they're serving a life sentence. They're told they're going to die in there. Mentally, that's what they have accepted. That's what they're expecting. And so to cut that away from them, even though, you know, you might be thinking like, oh, get them out of prison. It'll be good. Like, yay. That, like, you're welcome. You're out of prison. Like you've, you've taken away their life twice now. <laughs> yeah. It's that, it's that instability all over again. I got a bit of nostalgia seeing the Castle Rock logo at the beginning of this movie, which is a, a Stephen King reference. The Castle Rock is a town that appears in a, like a fictional town that appears in a bunch ah. of his books and stories. Mm-hmm. But it, it was a production company started by Rob Reiner. And Rob Reiner had directed Stand By Me, which is another Stephen King yeah. adaptation. They, they had a very long career, but over the time, Castle Rock ended up doing seven Stephen King movies. Uh, they did Misery, Shawshank Redemption, Needful Things, Dolores Claiborne, The Green Mile, also by Frank Darabont. Amazing. Hearts in Atlantis and Dreamcatcher. The collection that this story appears in is different seasons. It's four short novels. And uh, this one, the Rita Hayworth and the Shawshank Redemption is Hope Springs Eternal. Apt Pupil, which was also filmed in 1998, is Summer of Corruption. The Body was filmed by Rob Reiner as Stand By Me. That's uh, Fall from Innocence. And then the fourth one, The Breathing Method, A Winter's Tale, has not yet been filmed. It's kind of been in in production for years, Mm -hmm. but right now Scott Derrickson, who did Doctor Strange, he's attached. He's supposedly going to be finally making it. So it'll be all four of these will have been adapted into, I think so far, all of them have been successful films. I think the least successful is Apt Pupil, but that was still a pretty, pretty decent movie back then. Uh, do you have any? Do you have anything else you want to say about Shawshank Redemption? I think the the only other thing I would say is when he is when Andy, sorry, is you know going through the river at the end and he's finally got out, <laughs> and it's just that epic scene. Like, of course it's raining. Of course he is just like so exhausted. You know, he's carried his very small amount of belongings like tied his foot and he's crawled through sewage everything that is just the most epic release in a film I I just think that's amazing absolutely amazing and um, I love the line that Red says in a I think it's in a voiceover describing Andy as like the only one who the only man who ever crawled through a river of shit and came out clean on the other side like it, it makes it seem like just such a disgusting thing and it is a really horrible scene you know watching him go through all this sewage and then just the absolute relief and how epic that scene is when he's finally made it just makes the film for me it's amazing yeah it's it's very satisfying like there's frank darabont really has a classic hollywood kind of style Mm -hmm. where you like frank capra is a sort is like a an inspiration that he cites but you can really see like kind of old Hollywood craftsmanship, yeah. just like the the way he manipulates emotions, which uh, that kind of sounds like I'm saying something bad, but the way he kind <laughs> of like stages things, it, it's so classically satisfying. And I think, yeah. I don't think it's ever worked better than in Shawshank Redemption for him. I, I think this movie is, is great. I really, I, I, I'm so glad I, I'm so glad I picked this one. Like I I mean, like yay me, I guess, but I'm just yeah. saying 
like, no, I'm I, glad you did too. I, I, I was so nervous. Like, oh, I wonder if this will fit well. And I wonder if it'll like hold up for me, but I ended up like, I'm really glad I watched it. I'm really glad I showed it to my daughter. So yeah, this was fun. Yeah. I'm so glad I, I got a chance to rewatch it because it was so much more than I thought it was. I knew it was a, an amazing movie, but it's so much more than that. And I think even talking about it makes me want to watch it again because we've gone even deeper into, you know, the friendship meaning and I just want to get back into it. <laughs> yeah, I, I rented it and I have another, I have like, I have four, I have uh, 36 hours left on my rental. <laughs> and I might, I might watch it again. Yeah. I was actually thinking like, I went looking for the book, but I only found it last night. So I wasn't able to read it. I was like, no, maybe I should read the story again. For a short story, it's it's actually a novella. It's kind of long. It would take me a little while. Yeah, yeah, oh, epic film. All right, so that'll that'll be it for our main movie discussions. But don't go anywhere. We're going to be right back with our top fives of the week. Right, and we're back with our top fives. In our top fives, we're going to keep it simple. We're just going to go off the topic of the episode. These are our top five escape films. And we'll see how we both interpret that. Because I think I went a little bit sideways with my some of my choices. Me too. <laughs> Me too. I'm going to go with Dancer in the Dark. Oh, I've not seen that. Okay. I'm going to warn you right now. It is maybe the saddest movie I've ever seen. <laughs> oh, no. It's Lars Montrier. And he is a kind of a problematic figure now. He, he's a little bit too much of a provocateur. The, he did this one in the early 2000s. It's got Bjork in oh, okay. the lead role as a woman in the 60s who is going blind from a degenerative disorder. And she's trying to save up enough money to get her son in operation before it's too late for him. And he, he yeah. can like, you know, save his eyesight. It is so sad. People used to joke that the the only thing missing from it was the end credit sequence where Lars von Trier comes out and kills a box of kittens because oh. it's so sad. It's just, yeah. And I watched it in theaters and it's the only time I've ever been at a movie where the audience did not get up to leave until the credits were done. And I turned around and looked while the credits were playing and all I could see was people's cheeks reflecting back as everybody was crying. crying. It was... Oh amazing it but in that I way that like that. afterwards i had cried so much but i felt so excited to tell people about this movie because she loves musicals and so at certain points in the movie she starts fantasizing she's in a musical and it is it is a musical but the music moments are very much her escape from kind of yeah. the drudgery and we talk about miserable this is a movie that maybe gets a little bit too miserable so that that is my first so it is a mental it. escape. She escapes from her her dreary life into musicals. Yeah. Um well this will probably be a theme for me because I you know I <laughs> haven't seen so many films that I should have seen part of why I did the podcast like I said. Um but my first uh, escape film is very loosely based on escape as well because I realized I hadn't seen very many escape films. <laughs> yeah, um, <laughs> I, I had the same problem. <laughs> I honestly, I was looking um, up lists of top 100 escape films and I was like, I've seen Room and Shawshank Redemption and 
not much more off this list. Um, so my first one that I went with is Catch Me If You Can, um, where Leonardo DiCaprio plays the lead. Do love him, I have to say. And he, you know, it's it's based on the true story of Frank Abagnale, who created all these personas um, after having to choose between living with his mum or his dad when they're divorced at 16. And he creates all these personas. He pretends to be a pilot um, and so many other things. And he escapes the normality of life. He creates this incredible life for himself. He escapes um, Tom Hanks's character who is trying to track him down so much. It's such a clever film. And it's one of those films I just couldn't believe was actually true. And I watched a couple of interviews with the real Frank Abagnale and it's just so exciting how much of it was so close to his life. And, and I guess he also escapes prison, well, gets let out of prison to help the, I think it's the FBI, you know, work on their forgery sort of things. And uh, what would you call it? Like deducing whether or not something's yeah, real or fake. He works yeah. in their, their forgery, like, uh, yeah, gosh, what would the word be? <laughs> you know, yeah, like, like working out if things are forged or not. Yeah. But yeah, I just think he escapes so many different roles in his life, so much of the normality and mundane parts for him. He always has something else that he can do and he creates all this money for himself. Then he obviously does get caught and then the FBI actually figure out, mm, you're actually really useful for us. <laughs> yeah, I had to silence myself while you were talking about it. I don't know if you heard me intake breath there at the beginning because <laughs> I love Catch Me If You Can and that is such so a good. perfect choice. I, I'm like, you you said it and I just went, why didn't I pick that one? It's actually, it's the first one that came to me. I said it to one of my friends and they were like, that's not escape. And I was like, but it kind, it kind of is. It It's what came to me when we said escape and I thought of films that I'd actually seen. <laughs> no, it's a great one. And that, that movie is so much fun. So good. Okay. So my next one, you're, you're kind of kind of see a theme with a few of these. Mm -hmm. uh, it, it, the next one is The Fall by Tarsum. Oh. Uh, Tarsum Singh. I think he just directed under the name Tarsum. It is a absolutely stunning movie. I think <laughs> I think I might have actually mentioned it. This might have actually been in one of my top fives already, but it's so great. It is the story of this stuntman in kind of like early 1900s uh, Hollywood. He He's injured pretty severely and he's recuperating in a hospital. He kind of befriends this young girl that's in the hospital as well and starts telling her a story. Most of the movie is her imagination of what the story is. And it is so gorgeously realized. He famously said there's no computer imagery in no digital images in the movie and when you see the movie you will not believe that it is so gorgeous it looks so amazing the shots that he was able to capture so yeah that this that that's kind of the theme it's an escape again from from real life into a fantasy yeah. life which oh, I, I love that. yeah i don't know if you've seen it i'm not sure if i would recommend answer in the dark just because i don't know how it's going to hold up I don't know you that well. I don't necessarily <laughs> want to make you cry. <laughs> but, I love a film that has an effect on me. You know, room. Yeah, no, I, I know that. It, it's a little bit different, but yeah. The Fall, without a doubt. 
I would say check it out. It and then once you've checked it out, look up the the stories about how he made it. And the stories about how he made it are just about as interesting as the movie. It's it's really good. It's a you know I have no reservations about recommending that yeah. movie to anybody. Oh, I need to see that too. So my second film is well, I guess it's a series of film, but I've only seen two of them. Uh, is John Wick <laughs> because he escapes, we'll say, the villains uh. so many times. He is just <laughs> an absolute badass guy. You'd, I don't know how he does it. I don't know how he does not get killed. You know, he escapes a group of hitmen in the first one. He escapes being killed in the Continental and he escapes at the end, you know, when he, he's killed Vigo and he's he's been stabbed and he he goes to a, um is it a vet's i think it's a vet's and he sort of patches himself up and he takes a little dog with him for the next film um, because obviously at the start of john wick his dog is killed by yosef so i just think he's just such a badass guy and i just every time i'm like how does he do it the fight scenes in the John Wick films are so superbly choreographed. It's just, it's beautiful. I love it. it. It's not beautiful. It's it's horrible to watch, but it's, <laughs> it's beautifully choreographed. Oh, I know what you mean. There, there, there can be a beauty in choreography, mm-hmm. which I think is missing from a lot of modern action films, especially like the yeah. just Hollywood action films are kind of just like point a gun and shoot, point a gun and shoot. And there's something about letting stuntmen make their own films like uh like john wick it's stuntmen just yeah. in that film and they know how to move on screen they know how they want to shoot a stunt and that is i mean it's ugly seeing people getting shot so much but it is beautifully choreographed <laughs> yeah that's a good completely. choice completely so my next one i like like you, I kind of looked up escape movies and I'm like, huh, well, all I'm seeing are like prison escape movies and I haven't seen a lot of these, but I don't want to just be, you know, prison escape. We, we've got a prison escape movie on, that we're talking about. So I kind of like really had to think about it and came up with some maybe odd seeming choices. So my next one mm-hmm. is going to be Moonlight from 2016. Oh, I've not seen that, but it did well at awards yes uh where it's the the story of chiron a young well we we follow him through three periods in his life it's a young black man who is coming to terms with his sexuality he is gay uh, which is you know it, it grapples with that identity in a very masculine world like where he has to be hyper masculine all the time and we we kind of touch base with him three times and I'm picking it for this because it kind of, by the end of the movie, he has kind of escaped, <laughs> if you want to say use this term, kind of escaped the shackles of... Th- like society. Yeah, like he, is, he has escaped the constraints of what society thinks he needs to be as mm-hmm. like a young black man. And the maybe the cycles of abuse that lead to that and the cycles of poverty that he finds himself in that he he finds an escape that's what the entire movie is about basically is yeah. him like coming to terms with that 
that's how I'm fitting that in with the theme of escape. That sounds amazing. My next film is another fun one, Ocean's Eleven, um, because yeah. they kind of escape. Um, oh, what's his name? The guy who is running the Bellagio. They escape with all the money. And I just think when it gets to the end of that film, I mean, it's such an incredible cast and it's just, it's a joy to watch and it's so much fun. But at the end, when they do escape the Bellagio and you find out just how they did it, you know, becoming the SWAT team and replacing the money with uh, like posters and stuff, it's just amazing. And it's just one that got me so excited <laughs> when I was finding out how they actually did it. And then obviously, um, what's it? Danny goes to prison and then he gets out, obviously in time for another film. Um, but yeah, that's just a, a great film. It's one of those, you know, if you want to watch it and just not not have to think too much and just enjoy it. Yeah, I love that. that that's a very fun movie, like breezy, I would say. Yeah. And it's just kind of satisfying seeing that type of heist come together. Yeah. Like it, I mean, it, it, it is kind of a, like sets a template and is very, I don't know. I, I, I got to come up with whatever the word to say other than satisfying, but it's a satisfying movie to watch. It is. Yeah. It's just, it's, it's easy watching fun and also gets you thinking like, oh my God, these guys are smart. Yeah. There's a heist movie I almost put on mine, which is called, which is actually just heist, <laughs> a David Mamet movie from I think 2000. I've not seen that. that it's either. got Gene Hackman is in it, and it's it's got maybe one or two double crosses too many. By the end of the movie, it's just like so. It's like twist, 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 twist. Yeah. But yeah, Ocean's Eleven. That's a it's a good choice. I like that. I kind of watch that movie again sometime. Mm-hmm. So good. Okay, so my next one, also kind of a maybe sideways sideways approach to this list is groundhog day i have that too oh you do i would that's the one i was worried that you might actually have so good do you want do you want do you want me to take one of my alternates and you can use it or do you want to just use it i don't mind just talking talking about it okay yeah groundhog day because it it's such a satisfying (laughs) i'm using that phrase again (laughs) but it's so like it it's so good i i kind of like time loops i know people get really annoyed with that groundhog day trope nowadays yeah but i like it and it works so well in that because it is so much about like he has to escape from what he's holding himself back with like he's he's kind of holding himself back from growth and he has to find a way to get out of those patterns and i really like that kind of storytelling i like that kind of message in a story uh and and it's so much fun it's so funny that's what I think as well like you know there's parts of Groundhog Day that definitely go too far but it's it's a fun movie to watch it's it's a lot a a big message about mindset you know he's not going to move forward in life if he keeps playing this story over and over again like metaphorically and if he stays stuck in his ways his life's not going to get any better it's not going to progress in the way that he wants it to it's only when he starts changing little things and then that sort of snowballs into a whole host of changes and actually he changes his mindset he changes his outlook um, and he's just overall a nicer person that he escapes that time loop it's like the thing that he had to learn 
was basically just to get over himself. Like all of those other things he did were steps along that path, but they themselves didn't mean anything. <laughs> like it was just, he had to just kind of like give up, like kind of like not give up, but like, I don't know, like stop thinking Surrender. so much of himself yeah. and like, like stop making it all about him. And once he did that, he broke through it. And it's like, uh, finally, <laughs> it's a great, great little message in that movie. Completely. I love it. Um, so that was mine. And then also yours, I guess we'll go to my last one and then we'll do yeah. your last one. And I'm trying to think here because I got two that I really want to talk about, but I'm going to go with eternal sunshine of the spotless mind. Another one I haven't seen. <laughs> oh, okay. The plot of that movie is that there's a technology that can erase specific memories and Jim Carrey and Kate Winslet, both they're going through this horrible breakup and they both mm -hmm. decide to go through this procedure and have their memories of each other removed. And then there's a lot of it that's actually like visu visualizations of what's going on in their heads as they're kind of traveling through memories and their memories are crumbling around them. And like Jim Carrey in those memories decide like decides he wants to change his mind. So he's trying to protect a memory of this woman. And it, it's not like the, be the biggest feel good movie. And I don't really want to like spoil what goes on from there, but, um, I think people who have seen it might understand why I put it on this list. <laughs> yeah, it sounds good. And also Jim Carrey and Kate Winslet are not a pairing that I would have made. So I'm intrigued by that. It, it, it isn't like the initial pairing you would think, but it's it's one of those kind of like serious comic roles that Jim Carrey sometimes does. Because sometimes he can be like mm -hmm. a, a really good actor. And oh, then yeah. other times he just kind of like reverts to... You think it's Jim Carrey? <laughs> yeah. Uh, but yeah. I, that's another one. I would recommend that one. That's a good movie. Wow. Definitely add that to my ever-growing list. I know. My list um, is always growing and I can never yeah. seem to, <laughs> never seem to get it cut down. Um, so my last film is very, very loosely based on Escape and it kind of sparked from watching Room and that is Gone Girl. Ooh. Now, I put this down for escape because uh oh i just watched it the other day what's the lead guy's uh ben affleck name? ben affleck <laughs> how did i forget his name ben affleck's character escapes the media absolutely hating him and tormenting him but actually ends up trapped again with his wife uh, rosamund pike oh, it's it's a master class in acting from Rosamund Pike uh, and Ben Affleck, actually. It's just an incredible film that has such an effect on me, just like um, just like Room does. Um, but this is just, oh, it is an awful, it's an awful story, as in like, you can't believe someone can be this manipulative, but it's an incredible film to watch. Yeah, because that movie... It's it's so great how he handles your shifting perceptions of the characters. Like, oh yeah, like throughout the whole movie, it, well, to a certain point, you're like, did he do it? Did he not do it? Mm -hmm. What just happened? Like, you're you change your opinions of all the characters so many times in that movie, and I only saw it the once. I want to I want to go back to it. Um, yeah, but that that's a good one. I like David Fincher a lot. Oh, amazing! And, and I guess we could say that. Uh, Rosamund Pike's character kind of escapes 
her mundane life and she like regains control I mean I don't want to I don't want to like hype up this character because she's horrible but <laughs> yeah I, I kind of don't know what to feel about that movie because it's just uh, like or uh, how it, its representation of women in that movie is yeah it's but, it's uh, oh it's it's hard to watch but you can't stop watching it I kind of feel like David Fincher in this period in this period kind of like this and uh girl with the dragon tattoo mm-hmm. where he kind of makes trashy movies but really really classy yeah <laughs> like, I, that is that's true yeah it could you know it could be made in such a simple way and so unsophisticatedly but he he has he hires incredible actors um and he just has such an amazing eye. And yeah, I think the storytelling is wonderful. Well, great. That, I mean, those are those are 10 recommendations that I think we all, <laughs> I mean, we haven't seen all of them, but I think, you know, we'll, well, 10 recommendations. I don't know what yeah, I'm trying to say. We'll 10 recommendations. <laughs> <laughs> um, so this was really fun. I, I got to say it again, thank you very much for for coming on here. Thank you so much for having me. I have loved talking about two incredible films and having lots of, you know, new insight that has made me want to go back and watch the films again. I always say this when I talk about films, but it's just, it's it's been amazing listening to your insight and I have lots of new films to add to my list. I'm oh, well, thank now. you. No, you've been like great too. I, I really enjoyed this conversation and it's the same. Like, I listened to your episodes and I'm like, oh, I got to go watch that movie again. I think yeah. I commented that I, I'm going to start watching the alien series again. Cause you're alien three episode. Speaking of David. Yeah. Oh, and- I know. I know that episode totally, you know, I was not on board oh, with that film yeah. at all, but <laughs> no, that, that, that's, <laughs> that's understandable. That movie is, that movie is kind of a mess. I, I, I will, <laughs> I will agree with that, but, um, Oh, and your your sister act episode. Uh, I, I mean, I haven't seen that movie since I was a kid, but it was such a VHS staple. I like, I saw your post about. It. I'm like, oh, yeah, watch sister act again. Oh, that's definitely oh, such a feel good film, and I want to watch the second one as well because the music in the second one is better. I, I don't remember the <laughs> second one as much, but you're you're right. Like just talking about movies and hearing other people talk about them, you're like, oh, I got to watch that again. That sounds like yeah. so much fun. So Completely. thank you, thank you again. Uh, for coming on here uh you want to t- just one more time mention your podcast and where people can find you or the show yeah so um the podcast is choose film podcast it's on spotify and apple Podcasts. Uh, if you want to connect on instagram we're at choose film podcast or twitter at film choose uh, and if you want to connect with me probably best on instagram it's just at ashley sutherland awesome yeah and give their show a listen i really enjoy it Give them a follow on Twitter too. You you guys are posting interesting stuff and and you know interesting people to follow. Um, Thank you so much. As for us, you can also find us on Twitter and Instagram. It's both places at Two Headed Pod. There is also a Facebook page, and you should know how to look that up. <laughs> Just Incredible Two Headed Podcast. You'll find it on Facebook. We have a uh, partnership with Metallic Dice Games. If you have any need for dice or dice related materials. Head over to Metallic Dice Games, enter the code two heads, get 10% off your order. And that'll do it for us for another week. Thank you everybody for tuning in and we will see you next week with a new movie, new pair of movies and a new host body. Mm-hmm.